We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry, where we tackle social, political, and cultural issues from the perspective of unapologetic guests while highlighting citizen activists doing amazing things throughout the country. Well, friends, we've made it through another year. And what a year it was for America and the world. It started with a record number of women being sworn into office around the nation. And it's ending with the impeachment of the President of the United States. In between, we had a government shutdown, the Mueller report, seemingly unending strife and war around the world, a growing wealth gap in America, and an American executive branch attacking the most vulnerable in our nation in order to further enrich those who are the safest and the wealthiest. A presidential election came into full swing and candidates got into and out of the race. Climate change is happening and wildfires, hurricanes, and other natural disasters are coming at an increasing pace. The oceans are filling with plastic. Nearly 40,000 more people in America died from gun violence. Access to reproductive health care, voting, food security, shelter, and other basic human necessities are threatened for millions. And nobody in power seems to care. It's a lot. Sometimes it seems like it's too much. But you know what else we've had? We've also had you, our secret weapon. In the face of all of this tragedy, we've seen citizen activists doing amazing things. And it gives me so much hope. It's why I started this podcast. Because activism is optimism. It's a fundamental belief that things can change for the better. It's the best of humanity, working not just for ourselves, but for everyone. And it's been my honor to share it with you. This episode looks back at 2019 in the news and on the podcast. Thank you for spending it with me. But here we go. Oh, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. I'm Casey Hunt on Capitol Hill. Do you solemnly swear? Where the 116th Congress sworn in today is the most diverse in history. There are now more than 100 female members, the most ever. 
Donald Trump today became the first U.S. president ever to congratulate himself on placing a fast food order. He tweeted, <laughs> great being with the national champion Clemson Tigers last night at the White House. Because of the shutdown, I served them massive amounts of fast food. I paid over 1,000 hamburgers, etc. Within one hour, it's all gone. Great guys and big eaters. That's right. Hamburgers is what our president... How does that happen? The E and the U aren't even near each other on the keyboard. It's like in the middle of tweeting he had a stroke or something. And there's more breaking news. William Barr has just been sworn in as the new attorney general, gaining broad control of the special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia investigation. Big political headline this morning. President Trump signing legislation to fund the government and avoid a shutdown, but also declaring a national emergency in order to fund his border wall. That emergency declaration is now, though, facing threats of multiple lawsuits as well as legislative challenges. The president's former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, just sentenced to 47 months. That is one month shy of four years for running a global scheme to avoid paying millions in taxes, defrauding banks. Now, these are all charges that came from the Mueller team. And, uh, the Justice Department is, uh, is telling us that uh, Attorney General Bill Barr has now received the report from uh, Special Counsel Robert Mueller. The investigation, 675 days old, is now over. So, uh, obviously, this is a big moment for this White House. This is something, this is an investigation that has hung over the presidency of Donald Trump uh, since the beginning, obviously. And so uh, now the, the question is, what is in that report? So after a long look, after a long investigation after so many people have been so badly hurt after not looking at the other side where a lot of bad things happened a lot of horrible things happened a lot of very bad things happened for our country it was just announced there was no collusion with Russia and as set forth in the report after that investigation, if we had had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. Speaker Pelosi, are you ready to say that there was no collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia in light of the Mueller finding? Does this exonerate the president? I think that Mueller report was clear the president's not exonerated. In that deadly shooting rampage in Virginia Beach, this morning we are learning more about what happened inside that building where 12 people lost their lives. Should he have gone to the FBI when he got that email? Okay, let's put yourself in a position. You're a congressman. Somebody comes up and says, hey, I have information on your opponent. Do you call the FBI? I don't think it's coming from Russia, you you do. I've seen a lot of things over my life. I don't think in my whole life I've ever called the FBI. In my whole life. You don't call the FBI. You throw somebody out of your office. You do whatever you do. Al Gore got a stolen briefing book. He called the FBI. Well, that's different, a stolen briefing book. This This is somebody that said, we have information on your opponent. Oh, let me call the FBI. Give me a break. Life doesn't the work The FBI that director says that's what should happen. The FBI director is wrong. Good evening. The first 10 Democrats have just finished the first debate of the 2020 campaign, with another 10 taking the stage tomorrow. We begin in Washington, where it's been a contentious day on Capitol Hill. Members in the House of Representatives have just voted in favor of a resolution condemning comments from President Donald Trump. Now, the resolution calls his comments directed at four female members of Congress as racist. Now, Trump said if these Democratic Congresswomen of color did not like the United States, they should go back to the countries they come from. He also said they hate America. 
We have a lot of headlines to get to as well, including that breaking news overnight. Deadly shooting at a food festival in Northern California. Three people killed at least, 15 injured. A gunman opened fire. He was shot and killed by police. Police in El Paso, Texas say they're responding to an active shooter situation. They're warning people to avoid the area of Hawkins and Gateway East. Let's bring you some breaking news now about another mass shooting in America. Police have confirmed that nine people have been killed and at least 16 injured in a mass shooting in Dayton, Ohio. The gunman is now also dead. 680 undocumented immigrants were arrested yesterday in Mississippi. The massive raid involved several hundred federal ICE agents who surrounded the perimeters of at least seven food processing facilities to prevent people from leaving. Jeffrey Epstein is dead after being found unresponsive at a New York City jail Saturday morning. Officials say that his death was an apparent suicide. In his effort to crack down on immigration along the southern border, the president has repeatedly tried to change how the U.S. government detains migrants. Today, his administration went further than it has before, announcing big changes to the regulations that have been in place for decades. The president's team says the overhaul was not only overdue and legally required, but that it will lead to more humane conditions. Migrant advocates say it'll do the opposite. Well, Georgia has passed one of the most restrictive abortion policies in the country. The state's Republican governor, Brian Kemp, signed the so-called fetal heartbeat bill this morning. We are about to hear from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who is expected to announce that a formal impeachment inquiry is being established. Now, this follows reports that President Trump tried to pressure Ukraine's leader to investigate Vice President Joe Biden and his son, Hunter Breaking news now on Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We are just now learning she has undergone uh, new treatment for cancer. We do have breaking news tonight, a deeply divided moment playing out in American history as we come on the air. President Trump has just been impeached on both Article 1, abuse of power, and on Article 2, obstruction of Congress. In early January... A new House of Representatives was sworn in. As Donald Trump loves to say, elections have consequences. And this was the consequence of the blue wave that swept Congress in the 2018 midterms. Nancy Pelosi was once again Speaker of the House, and the Democrats took over the committees responsible for keeping the executive branch in check and ensuring its compliance with the law. And Donald Trump lost his shit. After the election, but before the new Congress was sworn in, he tried to assert his power, forcing the longest government shutdown in American history. Ultimately, he folded, but it set the stage for how he was going to interact with his co-equal branch of government. Well, since then, it's been an unprecedented level of animosity between the president and Congress. Yes, Congress has been investigating him for his many, many impeachable offenses, but Trump and his surrogates are using it as an excuse not to govern. From gun violence to immigration, military spending to infrastructure, Trump spent the year blaming the House leadership for his failure to do anything. Of course, he never mentions the hundreds of bills the House has passed, many which are sitting untouched in the Republican-led Senate. Perhaps more than anything, 2019 will go down as the year our executive branch stopped functioning at all, triggering an ongoing constitutional crisis, which will have implications for generations. Here are some highlights, or lowlights, of this year between Congress and the President. As you are aware, 
we have, we are diligent, diligent and persistent in trying to open up government. As I said today on the floor, we will take ideas, good ideas from wherever they come, including the idea of the appropriations bills passed by the Republicans in the United States Senate. They passed six bills, four of them on the floor with over 90 votes, two of them in committee unanimously, and those six bills uh, cover eight agencies, uh, departments of government that could be opened just by the stroke of the pen of the President of the United States. So we told the President we needed the government open. He resisted. In fact, he said he'd keep the government closed for a very long period of time, months or even years. We have solutions that will pass the House and Senate right now and will not shut down the government, and that's what we're urging you to do. Not threaten to shut down the government, because you, you let me just finish, because you can't get your way. The last time you shut it down, you yeah, got killed. Let me say something, Mr. President. You just say, my way or we'll shut down the government. We have a proposal that Democrats and Republicans will support to do a CR that will not shut down the government. We urge you to take it. And if it's not good border security, I it won't take it. It is very good border security. And if it's security. not good border security, border security, I won't take it. It's what the Because when you look at these numbers, of the effectiveness of our border security. And when you look at the job that we're doing, you with just our military, said it is effective. President Trump on a tweet storm today, lashing out at House Democrats, labeling them do nothing Democrat savages. And again, calling the House impeachment inquiry presidential harassment. So you have worked with six presidents dating back to 1987 with Ronald right. Reagan. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering what it's like to work with this president on these issues. Well, the other presidents I've uh, worked in elite. Uh, as a member of Congress, yes, with six presidents. Not so much with Ronald Reagan because that was sort of the end of his term when I came in in '87. But with President George Herbert Walker Bush and with President Bush George W. Bush for two Republican presidents, um, they believed in governance. They believed in governance, so you could work with them because they believed that there is a public role in the lives of the American people. And, um, but this president does not, he doesn't believe in science and he doesn't believe in governance. So it's very hard to get anything done. I think the Democrats are lousy politicians with lousy policy. They want open borders. They don't care about crime. They want sanctuary cities. Uh, They don't care about drugs. They don't care about almost anything. They don't care about USMCA. How about that? I think they're lousy politicians. But two things they have, they're vicious and they stick together. They don't have Mitt Romney in their midst. The whistleblower started this whole thing by writing a report on the conversation I had with the president of Ukraine. And the conversation was perfect. It couldn't have been nicer. I saw Rick Scott. I saw many of the senators talking about it, many of the congressmen talking about it. Not a thing wrong, unless you heard the Adam Schiff version where he made up my conversation. He actually made it up. It should be criminal. It should be treasonous. For any political junkie, presidential campaigns are as exciting as it gets. I love to hear people standing up and sharing their vision for America. It's a vision we need. 
And I've not endorsed any presidential candidate during the primaries. I think almost everyone in the Democratic field brings something compelling to the table with ideas that need to be heard. And I want to be able to be as loud and clear as possible in support of the eventual Democratic nominee. Because I believe Donald Trump poses a serious existential threat to American democracy. It is a question hovering over this Democratic 2020 field. Whether you're Elizabeth Warren stumping over the weekend in New Hampshire or Kamala Harris in Iowa. How to balance appealing to the progressives in the party versus the moderates. Tonight, 20 candidates, four hours of debate. We have a new vision for America. This generation is ready to lead. We all talk about these things. I did it. I did it. It's the biggest test yet for this slew of presidential hopefuls battling out at the first Democratic debates in Miami, hosted by NBC News. All vying to define and for some introduce themselves on the national stage. I would pass a $1,000 freedom dividend for every American adult starting at age 18. We don't have a health care system in the United States. We have a sickness care system in the United States. A new CBS News poll finds the 2020 race is tightening. Our CBS News battleground tracker focused on the 18 early caucus and primary contests. It starts with Iowa and goes all the way to Super Tuesday. Frontrunner Joe Biden is holding his lead in these states. The former vice president has 25 percent of voter support, followed by Senator Elizabeth Warren with 20 percent. Senators Kamala Harris and Bernie Sanders are each right behind. New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand has dropped out of the Democratic primary, becoming the fourth candidate to quit in just the last two weeks. Seven candidates so far have either ended or suspended their presidential campaigns. That leaves 20 candidates still in the race. Congressman Eric Swalwell officially dropped out of the 2020 presidential race. The major news in the race for 2020, Senator Kamala Harris announcing she's dropping out. A once historically diverse field of Democratic presidential candidates will look a lot different during the next debate. In the exclusion of black or Latino candidates from the stage could alienate voters the party depends on. Democratic presidential candidates are vowing to boycott the upcoming presidential debate in Los Angeles in support of union protesters. All seven candidates who qualified for the debate have threatened not to attend. With new polls showing his Democratic rivals well positioned to make him a one-term president, President Trump is wrapping up the third summer of his presidency by lashing out in all directions as he watches one of his biggest priorities, the border wall, at a standstill, and the economy perhaps unable to sustain its extraordinary pace. What seems to be unsettling the president are the poll numbers. With the election 14 months away, a new Quinnipiac poll shows Trump trailing each of the top four Democratic candidates by double digits. It's been my honor to have several presidential candidates on the show, from top-tier contenders to outside-of-the-box thinkers. I've heard inspiring ideas and compelling arguments for their candidacies. I hope to bring you more in 2020. Every campaign has an open invite, even Donald Trump, although it might not be so much fun for him. Anyway, here are some of my favorite moments from the candidates I've been able to interview so far. For the first time, we're seeing real accountability. When men lose their jobs and their reputations as a result of the acts they've committed, we start to get real cultural change. There has to be moral disapprobation for what they do, and they have to be identified. 
We've seen a real national conversation happen in the last year and a half. We've seen a powerful attitude shift in support of women coming forward. They now know they come forward and they'll be embraced and not just vilified. From Hollywood to the highest levels of sports, to corporate boardrooms, but also to the shop floors and local restaurants. But we have so much more to do. You know, when I hear that the pendulum has swung too far, I think how absurd that is. This kind of backlash occurs when you start to make real progress. We have hundreds of years to make up for. We have to change the culture of the United States. And this is our moment. This is our moment. You know what the phrase me to uh, uh, rule of thumb means? It goes back to common law in the late 1300s. They said that a man can no longer strike a woman with a stick bigger than the circumference of his thumb. This is a cultural problem. And Me Too has been a powerful tribute to truth-telling. We have to reach women at all levels, not just actresses in Hollywood, but the waitresses in restaurants down the street, the farm worker, the hotel maid. And uh, and a year, and, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's been vitally important to have so many women, people like you, leaders like you, and others using their platforms to help reach women every day so that every woman knows that there's help available, that we're there, that abuse occurs in every industry, that every sector of society, it's not their fault. It's, they can't have to stop blaming themselves. We have to come forward. They have to come forward. And we have to embrace them. I'm Marianne Williamson, and that about which I am unapologetic is the fact that I'm running for the Democratic nomination for President of the United States. I'm sorry, and I'm not sorry. All that a nation is is a group of people. You know, the political establishment has created this myth. It's this real Wizard of Oz type thing. that something's going on behind the curtain that we don't know about. No, it's not. It's just people sitting. I've been in the White House. I've been at Camp David. It's a room just like we're sitting in and people are sitting around talking. And then they're going to make decisions and the president's going to make a phone call and say, I want it this way. That's how it works. Mm-hmm. It, there's, there's not this huge, this, right. this, oh, you have to be one of them to know. Mm-hmm. That's particularly funny because... People who think you have to be one of them apparently don't know what they do all day. Right. Half the time, they're having to be on the phone asking for money. Yeah. How about immigration? I mean, you're Uh, in a unique position because of your dad. Yes. What this man has done, what the president has done to demonize the immigrants is, well, first of all, it's criminal. It's criminal on an external level because kidnapping a child is is a crime. And the fact that your your government did it doesn't make it less of a crime. intentionally inflicting a traumatic circumstances onto a child is child abuse. That's a crime. And it doesn't make it less of a crime uh, just because your, uh, your government did it. That's called state-sponsored crime. And as president, I will make sure that those who have, have created these policies and perpetrated these policies will be held accountable to the full extent of the law. This was an intentional This was a crisis that is not, you know, people talk about the crisis at the border. First of all, we have to look at the crisis in El Salvador, the crisis in Guatemala, the crisis in Honduras. And you might remember that at the first uh, at the first debate, I said, I don't remember any of you guys have any co- anything to say about uh, foreign policy in Latin America over the last few decades, because what we have done in international policy is exactly what we've done in domestic policy, and that is to put short-term profit maximization for huge multinational corporations. We begun to consider them our quote-unquote vital national interest as opposed to real championing of democracy and amelioration mm-hmm. of human suffering. The president purposely closed many of the ports. We have a humanitarian disaster coming up. People whose lives are so 
fraught with violence and fear, but they are willing to do anything. Hello, I'm Ben Glebe, and I'm running for president of the United States of America. Some people think that is an audacious move for somebody from the outside without a background in politics. I disagree. Sorry, not sorry. Instead of going high when they go low, you believe that we should go straight at them. Yes, I think that as much as I love Michelle Obama and respect her so much, you know, I worked with her organization when we all vote on the Telethon for America that I created back in November. But our goal was to help create historic voter turnout. And we did play some small part in creating that. We ended up having the next day in the midterms, best turnout since 1914 and record turnout ever among youth. And you were part of it. And thank you so much for... Thank you for the opportunity. Of course, for being part of the telethon. And, um, but I disagree with her on this one respect, is that, like I said, we need to bring the right weapons to the fights of our day, and we have to fight fire with fire to win. And so I think when they go low, it's a great chance to step on them, because they're down there already. And that's the way I phrase it. And not to anybody, you don't step on vulnerable people like... The other side likes to do, but when people are trying to step on vulnerable people, you push them out of the way. It's not, we do not have time for being polite. Mm. Our country's being flushed down the toilet. We don't have time to be, oh, oh, I also want to make sure I didn't get my suit dirty. My suit's dirty. I, I have a very low dry cleaning bill. I'm Andrew Yang, and I'm running for president on a platform to give every American adult $1,000 a month. Sorry, not sorry. Can you pinpoint how and why we didn't prepare the people of this country better for the changing economy? It's because the incentives in D.C. in particular are broken. I mean, the the fact is, if D.C. does a bad job for 5, 10, 20 years in a row, no one loses their job. Nothing actually happens. Uh, They figured this out decades ago. And the feedback mechanism is now broken to the point where tens of millions of Americans thought that taking a bet on a narcissist reality TV star was actually the right, right move. Washington, D.C. right now is the richest metro area in the country. I mean, just think about that for a sec. Like, how the heck did that happen? Like, what do they produce? Uh, what they produce is access to the spigots of federal money. Uh, and if you go there, you, you see that their incentives to serve the people of this country are vanishingly low. So when you talk about, it's like, how do we not prepare uh, our education system or our people for all these changes? Just no one in D.C. has any accountability. Or could creatively see it coming, maybe? Oh, they can't see it coming either. I mean, you go there and, uh, you know, I, I went there and said, hey, what are we going to do to help people understand the fourth industrial revolution that is wreaking havoc now on communities around the country. And someone in D.C. said to me flat out, he said, Andrew, no one's going to do anything about it here in D.C. And he said, this is not a town of leaders. This is a town of followers. What year was this? This was 2017. This was right after Trump won. I went to D.C. and I said, hey, what are we going to do? And then he said, no, one's gonna, no one here is going to do anything. <sighs> yeah, this, why I'm running is that I realized that the feedback mechanism mechanism does not work. DC is not up for these challenges. They either don't understand or don't care or some combination. And so we're going to have to do it ourselves. It requires a popular revolution. It requires us to get control of the government and then rewrite the rules of the economy so that it actually works for the 80% of the families that are living paycheck to paycheck. But here's the magic, Alyssa. And this is the thing that 
You know I love magic. Well, here's the thing that energizes this campaign is that there's nothing preventing the majority of citizens of a democracy from rewriting the rules of our capital flows to improve our own lives. We can do it very, very quickly. In my business, having straight teeth is so important. And for me, that meant making sure my teeth were perfectly straight with Candid. If you're unhappy with your smile or self-conscious in photos, you have to check them out. They deliver clear aligners right to you and straighten your teeth for 65% less than braces. And the best part? They are totally invisible. You can transform your smile without anyone noticing a thing. And you never have to set foot in a doctor's office or a waiting room. Your treatment is prescribed remotely by a licensed orthodontist. And Candid delivers everything you need right to your door. Unlike other companies, Candid only works with your orthodontists, never general dentists. That means your treatment will be designed by an expert in tooth movement with 20 years of experience on average. Looking ahead to a wedding season or a special event? With Candid, the average treatment length is just six months, and you'll start seeing results way before then. Learn more about Candid's process and get a complimentary 3D scan of your teeth at a Candid studio near you. It's the simplest, freest way to get started. Are you ready to take the first step towards straighter teeth? For a limited time, you could get started with $75 off by using code SORRY at candidco.com slash sorry. That's candidco.com slash sorry. Use code SORRY for $75 off. Candidco.com slash sorry. Code SORRY. For just the third time in our history, the House of Representatives has impeached the President of the United States. Much of this year in our federal government was spent investigating, reporting on, debating, and ultimately taking this action. While the impeachment was over the president's mishandling of military aid to Ukraine, it started with the Mueller report and overwhelming evidence of 10 counts of obstruction of justice from the Trump administration. It's easy to forget because so much has happened, but the Mueller report resulted in more than 30 indictments against Trump administration officials and did not recommend charging the president himself only because the Justice Department rules prevented him from doing so. Director Mueller, you wrote in your report that you, quote, determined not to make a traditional prosecutorial judgment, end quote. Was that in part because of an opinion by the Department of Justice, Office of Legal Counsel, that a sitting president can't be charged with a crime? Yes. Director Mueller, at your May 29th, 2019 press conference, you explained that, quote, The opinion says that the Constitution requires a process other than the criminal justice system to formally accuse a sitting president of wrongdoing, end quote. We determined that there was a sufficient factual and legal basis to further investigate potential obstruction of justice issues involving the president. Is that correct? Yes. Your report also describes at least 10 separate instances of possible obstruction of justice that were investigated by you and your team. Is that correct? Yes. 
House Democrats are weighing their next steps after the special counsel's statement yesterday. The announcement put more pressure on Speaker Nancy Pelosi to start an impeachment inquiry. But she says we still don't have all the facts. White House official who listened in on the president's phone call with the president of Ukraine described it as crazy and frightening. This according to the whistleblower at the heart of the impeachment inquiry. It's perfect. The call was perfect. It was on that call President Trump told the Ukrainian president, I would like you to do us a favor, and asked him to investigate a debunked conspiracy theory about Democratic emails, and also Joe Biden and his son. For the past several months, we have been investigating in our committees and litigating in the courts so the House can gather all the relevant facts and consider whether to exercise its full Article I powers, including a constitutional power of the utmost gravity, approval of articles of impeachment. And this week, the president has admitted to asking the president of Ukraine to take actions which would benefit him politically. The, action of the, Trump, the actions of the Trump presidency revealed the dishonorable fact of the president's betrayal of his oath of office, betrayal of our national security, and betrayal of the integrity of our elections. Therefore, today, I'm announcing the House of Representatives moving forward with an official impeachment inquiry. You are not asleep. <laughs> this is not a dream. This is really happening. This is your life. This is our country and our time. It is Wednesday, the 18th of December in the year 2019, and President Donald Trump is impeached. The vote in the House of Representatives tonight to impeach the president was not close. It was 230 to 197 on the first article, which was abuse of power. One Democrat voted present. Uh, on the second article, obstruction of, of Congress, it was a vote of 229 to 198. <laughs> Well, I was honored to be a part of Robert Schenken's dramatic interpretation of the Mueller report in June. John Lithgow, Annette Benning, and Kevin Klein led a truly remarkable cast and made the report just come to life. I'm so happy to share a small part of that performance with you here. And after that, you'll hear from Renato Mariotti, Congressman Kennedy, Congressman Raskin, Deborah Messing, and Amy Vanderpool about their thoughts on impeachment. Ten. Ten, Ten acts of obstruction. obstruction. Act one. President Trump asked the FBI director to shut down the investigation into National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. Act two. President Trump said he fired FBI Director Comey because of the Russia investigation. Act 3. President Trump ordered White House Counsel Don McGahn to fire Robert Mueller. Act 4. President Trump attempted to curtail the special counsel investigation. Act 5. President Trump prevented the public disclosure of evidence. Act 6. President Trump wanted Attorney General Sessions to unrecuse from the Russia investigation. Act 7. President Trump directed White House Counsel Don McGahn to create false documents that covered up the truth from investigators. Act 8. President Trump tried to discourage campaign chairman Paul Manafort and national security advisor Michael Flynn from cooperating with the Mueller investigation. Act 9. 
President Trump encouraged his personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, to lie about Trump Tower Moscow. Act 10, President Trump tried to get Michael Cohen not to cooperate with the investigation. Ten acts of obstruction. Some people came to a different conclusion, like Attorney General Bill Barr. The president took no act that, in fact, deprived the special counsel of the documents and witnesses necessary to complete his investigation. Apart from whether the acts were obstructive, this evidence of non-corrupt motives weighs heavily against any allegation that the president had a corrupt intent to obstruct the investigation. Let's look at exactly what he actually said. On May 29th, for the very first time, Robert Mueller spoke directly to the press. The order appointing me special counsel authorized me to investigate actions that could obstruct the investigation. We conducted that investigation and we kept the office of the acting attorney general apprised of the progress of our work. As set forth in our report, after that investigation, if we had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said that. If we had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said that. They did not have confidence. He was innocent. But if they thought he was guilty and had committed any one or all ten acts of obstruction, why didn't they charge him? As if anticipating that very question, Mueller told the press in his statement, Under long-standing department policy, a president cannot be charged with a federal crime while he is in office. That is unconstitutional. Even if the charge is kept under seal and hidden from public view, that too is prohibited. The special counsel's office is part of the Department of Justice, and by regulation, it was bound by that department policy. Charging the president with a crime was therefore not an option we could consider. If he wanted to charge the president, he couldn't. Mueller's hands were tied by regulation. The department's written opinion explaining the policy against charging a president makes several important points that further informed our handling of the obstruction investigation. Those points are summarized in our report. I will describe two of them. First, the opinion explicitly permits the investigation of a sitting president because it is important to preserve evidence while memories are fresh and documents are available. Among other things, that evidence could be used if there were co-conspirators who could now be charged. And second, the opinion says that the Constitution requires a process other than the criminal justice system to formally accuse a sitting president of wrongdoing. Fortunately, the Constitution provides for just such a situation. How do you think the impeachment inquiry will impact the 2020 election? 
Well, first I should say we're, we're a nonpartisan organization. We're engaged in doing this uh, not because of some electoral strategy but to defend our constitution. But I think that what's important is that the president faced these charges, uh, that he's committed these impeachable offenses, and that every member of Congress and every senator be forced to vote on this question uh, and that the public be further educated on these high crimes the president's committed. I think there's been an enormous amount of deception and disinformation that's been attempted by the Attorney General of the United States, William Barr, and of course by the president himself. I'm Congressman Joe Kennedy, and I believe that impeachment proceedings need to begin against President Donald Trump. Hi, this is Deborah Messing. I am absolutely unequivocally for impeachment, and I have been for a while. I think that it is a dereliction of duty for any member of of Congress who can look at what Trump has done. Russia attacks us. He welcomed it. He lied to investigators. He tampered with witnesses. He obstructed justice. He is a virulent racist. He put children in cages. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. We are well beyond high crimes and misdemeanors. We are now talking about protecting the rule of law and protecting our democracy. This is Congressman Dan Kildee. Some have suggested that the politics may be bad, that this could be bad for the 2020 election. First of all, I don't think we know. I don't think we can know what the political implication will be because we first have to take our case to the American people, which we have not effectively done. An impeachment inquiry would allow us to do that. But secondly, and maybe more importantly, what difference does it make what the politics are? That's the problem. We shouldn't be thinking about the politics. We should think about how we defend the Constitution, how we defend the rule of law, and how we explain this moment to our children. And in my case, I think about my own grandchildren. How will I explain how I dealt with a president that has gone so far off the rails? I'm Amy Vanderpool, and I'm a lawyer and analyst who writes Shiro on Substack.com. While you have to remember that democracy was intended to be slow to protect us all, you also have to know that calling your representatives to demand action is your civic duty and essentially required in this situation. happening again. Like last year, there will be 40,000 gun deaths in America before the ball drops on New Year's Eve. 
2019 has the most mass shootings on record. There have been more mass shootings than days. Odessa and Midland, Gilroy, El Paso, Dayton, Jersey City, Virginia Beach, New Orleans, Philadelphia, Saugus High School, in small towns and large, blue and red, rich and poor, across races and all other boundaries, gun violence is one of the largest public health crises in the history of America. There is nothing which kills so many Americans that our government is not doing everything it can to fight. With guns, though, they stuff themselves at the NRA buffet and do absolutely nothing. Three gun violence prevention bills have been sitting in the Senate since the spring. They have not even been assigned to committees for discussion. Mitch McConnell is so afraid of the public debate that he won't allow one because he knows that Americans overwhelmingly want these laws passed. And he cannot win the debate, so we keep dying. John Berman here in for Anderson tonight. Our hearts go out to Virginia Beach, Virginia, where police say a city employee opened fire in a municipal building and took at least 11 lives before police took his. Six more people are in the hospital. An update now on that deadly shooting near a busy shopping mall in El Paso, Texas. It happened at a Walmart near Cielo Vista Mall this morning, about 10 a.m. local time. The scene is about seven miles from downtown El Paso. Here is what we know at this hour. NBC News has learned that at least 18 people have been killed. It was an ordinary Saturday night in Dayton's entertainment district until this. We got shots fired. We got multiple people down. We think there's one shooter. He is down. Just boom, 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 boom. Rapid. If you could tell it's a big gun, you're not going to get those from no handgun. Over in less than a minute, nine people were dead, including the suspect's younger sister. The gunman, 24-year-old Connor Betts, fatally shot by police. This was his weapon, bought legally, fitted with magazines capable of holding 100 rounds of ammunition. Police say Betts was wearing body armor and a mask, suggesting he'd planned the attack. Good evening. Uh, so I'm the chief of police for the city of Gilroy, Scott Smithy. We have at least uh, 15 people injured. Uh, we have four fatalities that we know of, uh, including the suspect. At least seven victims are dead and 22 are injured after another mass shooting in Texas. The violence started Saturday during a traffic stop in the Odessa Midland area of West Texas. Turn now to this urgent investigation underway in New Orleans after a mass shooting in the city's French Quarter. Gunfire erupted there on Sunday, injuring at least 10 people. When it comes to mass shootings, the U.S. is an outlier. We spoke to Adam Lankford, a professor of criminology at the University of Alabama. He's looked at how the U.S. compares to other countries when it comes to this issue. But there's a problem when comparing the U.S. to another country because mass shootings are overall fairly rare and some countries are very small, so one event can skew the data. So here's what he did. He looked at how shootings in the U.S. compared to whole continents, areas with really big populations comparable to this country's 300 plus million people. And when looking at it that way, the U.S. has many more mass shooters than the rest of the world, more than one per every 10 million people between 1998 and 2012. No other continent comes even close. 
Overall, the U.S. represents about 30% of mass shooters worldwide. What do we want? Justice! When do we want it now? Manuel Oliver is an artist and activist living in Parkland, Florida. His son, Guac, was murdered on Valentine's Day of 2018 in the school shooting there. He joined me to talk about his activism, and his spirit is remarkable. Later, I joined Manny's friend and fellow grieving father, Fred Guttenberg, whose daughter, Jamie, was killed in Parkland, and my NORA co-founder, Ben Jackson, in Washington. We went there to ask Ted Cruz to do something, anything, about gun violence. Some of each of these conversations are up next. My name is Manuel Oliver. I'm fighting to protect your kids. I'm sorry. Not nah, sorry. How much has the community, the Parkland community, because it is so close-knit, how much has that uh, helped you along the way? I, I, and the reason why I ask is because I think that we have completely lost uh, a sense of true community until tragedy strikes. And normally, you know, communities will, will come together and, and do whatever we can to, to lift each other up. But I, I'm always curious as to why it takes a tragedy especially nowadays, when it seems like so many, you know, decades ago, uh, a community spirit and a community love and pride was almost just a given. Well, communities where you choose to live. I mean, I, I, the whole thing about me being in Parkland is a, it's a mix of of coincidence, one after the other. I mean, I'm from Venezuela, then I moved to United States, and then I decided to move to Parkland because the schools were safe and they were good and they were rated very high in 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 compared with other schools districts. So that's already ironic enough. The community itself um, shows a lot of support right after the tragedy, and then you'll see how the community starts slowing down. Um, in that s way of supporting you, and and it and it goes back to where it was before. That is a, totally an American tradition, I believe. This is a shocking thing that happened that should change a community forever. Uh, but I but I need also to add that in my in my personal experience, this is beyond Parkland, and this is beyond the schools, and and. I decided to take that path of understanding that I have to look at this as a big picture. When I see this as a big picture, I see a big community, which is all United States of America. And, and I have a lot of support when I see the big picture. I have, there's a lot of Americans that understand what we're fighting for. And that way I will never feel frustrated because the community is not supporting me anymore. In Massachusetts, we have among the strictest gun laws in the country. Yeah. We have also the lowest per capita gun death rate in the country. In my town, suburban town, 20,000 residents, there are five places people can buy guns. People who want guns in Massachusetts can have guns, right? 
We don't have AR-15s. We have some limitations on the number of guns we can buy. But I think that the person you're talking about, the person who's defending themselves, is not buying 20 guns a year to carry on to protect themselves. They're not, it's, it's not a fashion piece. It's not a seasonal economy, right? It's something that they buy to defend themselves. And you can have that. You can actually, and, and in our state, you get your firearms ID from your local police chief. So the people who are interacting with you in your community are the people who are allowing you to have that. We still have guns. You know, we still have guns. You can still carry a gun. You can still get a license to carry a gun. You can still go to a gun range. You can still hunt. Keep hunting is a big industry for us. But we're not getting shot at the same rate. And I'll also add... But by the way, Massachusetts is adjacent to states where you have constitutional carry and you can buy firearms. And unlike Chicago, is not saying... The, the massive murder rate. So, so, so the whole argument of Chicago that, gosh, we've got Indiana nearby and that's the problem. I would say the population of New Hampshire is substantially different than the population. But, but you can purchase a gun in New Hampshire. There are factors going on in Chicago, okay, that are clearly specific to Chicago. The and access, one of the big factors is that but, but, violent criminals who commit gun crime are too often released and they commit more gun crimes. But, and if but, you want to so, stop it, Put them in jail. But those factors are separate from where the weapons may be coming from. Now, I live in Florida. You know that. And in Florida, after my daughter's murder, we passed gun safety legislation. We shot people. Florida. And you know what? There's not a single legal lawful gun owner who has been restricted because of what we did in Florida. So this notion that taking steps and doing more. And when you said that she was not an anomaly... The mass shootings using assault weapons is also not an anomaly, and it's happening far too often. And and you have your your. I just want to read you something. Okay, sure. Um, I do not believe in taking away the right of the citizen for sporting, for hunting, and so forth, or for home defense. But I do believe that a machine gun, an AK forty seven, is not a sporting weapon or needed for defense of a home. One of the most disgusting chants of the Trump era is build the wall. Forget that the stupid thing won't work. Forget that it's already being defeated. What is so sickening about it is that it's a manifestation of fear and hatred and xenophobia. People who are suffering from the long-term and contemporary failure of our government to take care of American workers blame immigrants instead of the cowardly politicians and businesses who created their problems. And instead of fixing it, those same politicians, those hateful and vulgar men, mostly, are using it for political gain. They are destroying our national identity. They are trying to redefine what it means to be American, and we can't let them. This year, I visited the border. I saw where children were being locked up, refused medications, adequate nutrition or education, or even the powerful comfort of their parents. I saw firsthand the evil being done in our name, and it's one of the worst things I have ever seen. We're here on this very beautiful spring day in the Rose Garden to unveil our plan to create a fair, modern, and lawful system of immigration for the United States. And it's about time. 
It's a detention space, ma'am, that you know has existed for decades. Does it differ from the cages you put your dogs in when you let them stay outside? Is it, a, is it different? It, it, yes. In what sense? Uh, it's larger. It has facilities. Uh, it provides room to sit, to stand, to lay down. So did my dog's cage. Are the jails different than the um, cages that you have allowed the children to be put in? I'm sorry, which jails? Are the jails that you put their parents in or the adults that come here with children that you say are coming here illegally? Uh, the detention centers, uh, most of them, no, ma'am. They have a border around the outside, uh, but they essentially sleep in dorm-like conditions. So they live in better conditions than the children? No, ma'am. I just want to know, if the children are in cages, what do you consider the detention facilities to be? Because I'm, I'm suspecting that you're putting children in places that seem to be less livable. There are undocumented children being held alone in detention, even as close as Homestead, Florida, right here, less than 30 miles from where we are tonight. Fathers and mothers and children are dying while trying to enter the United States of America. We saw that image today that broke our hearts, and they had names. Oscar Martinez and his 23-month-old daughter Valeria died trying to cross the river to ask for asylum in this country. Last month, more than 130,000 migrants were apprehended at the southern border. Secretary Castro, if you were president today, oi, what would you specifically do? Thank you very much, uh, Jose. I'm very proud that in April I became the first candidate to put forward a comprehensive immigration plan. And we saw those images, <laughs> watching that image of, of Oscar and his daughter Valeria uh, is heartbreaking. It should also piss us all off. A 16-year-old Guatemalan boy has died in U.S. custody in the Rio Grande Valley in South Texas. He is the fifth migrant child to die since December. And we're building a wall on the border of New Mexico. And we're building a wall in Colorado. We're building a beautiful wall. Before we get started, I just want to give a special shout out to all of our viewers watching from the Colorado-Mexico border. And what makes this video so disturbing is that this boy dies unattended from what should be a treatable illness. I want my family together! I want my family together! I want my family together! The next two clips are from Jen Budd a former Customs and Border Patrol agent who shared her insights into the toxic culture at this agency, and Rafael Augustine, a television writer and former undocumented American who is living the American dream. After listening, you tell me whose side you'd rather be on. Hi, this is Jim Budd, and I'm a former senior Border Patrol agent with the United States Border Patrol in Campo, California, and a former intelligence agent with San Diego Sector. And um, I believe and I know that asylum is not a crime and being an immigrant is not a crime. And families do not deserve to die and be held in indefinite detention. Sorry, not sorry. Can you talk a little bit about is there any protocol as far as reporting 
if you saw injustices, were you meant to keep that quiet or like what, what, what was it like functioning on a daily basis there? Um, so I, uh, I guess I would be known as a rat. (laughs) Um, you get, they call it diming out. So if I see Agent Milano hit a migrant and I go to the supervisor and I say, Agent Milano hit a migrant for no reason, then the next day or that night, I can expect to find a whole bunch of dimes in my mail drawer. Right. And they're telling you that you're a rat and you're diming people out and stuff like that. So uh, you're encouraged to stay quiet. And I routinely, I, you know, I would tell people, if you don't, want me to rat on you, then don't do anything in front of me that gives yeah, me exactly. cause to rat yeah. on you. Um, you know, and how prevalent was that behavior? Well, you know, I mean, fortunately, because I worked by myself and I didn't get a lot of backup, right. I didn't have that issue. But then, like, if I'm at the checkpoints or, you know, whatever, it's prevalent. I mean, it's there are so many, especially for the men, there's so many... Uh, sexual assault allegations uh, against the agents from migrants and the border patrol just kind of makes them go away or they kind of sometimes if they get a lawyer, they'll pay their lawyers and just make it go away. And then you never hear about it. So, and is that common? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really common. I would say, I think about 20% of the agents in the border patrol are trying to be professional. That's it? 20%? Yeah. So two out, out of every 10. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a system from from training all the way up to the chief. And, and, and they structure this and they teach this through the academy. Right. It's, the, all, it's all set up that way, right? And then when you get to post-academy, it's set up that way. And they and you up, probably learn really quick the rules, right? Yeah, you learn. Well, yeah. I don't know. I don't think I ever really learned. It. Well, you're I, a disruptor. <laughs> You'd be a disruptor no matter what. That's yeah. what we love about you. Yeah, Jen. but no, the, you, you learn. Yeah, you learn. It's 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 a brotherhood, and I'll pat your back, and you pat mine, and that's what the setups are like in post academy. So you graduate the academy, and you go to post academy at your station for a couple of months, and that's where they decide if you're going to play ball or not. Are you going to use the racist terms? Are you going to, you know, ignore it when you're training? And is that encouraged or discouraged? Oh, big it time is encouraged. encouraged. Everybody does it. And they look down on you and question you if you should be there or not. And they can fail you on your Spanish boards in Post Academy. And that's exactly what Post Academy is for, is to find those who are not going to play ball. The women, if the women file, you know, sexual assault charges against the agents who are sexually assaulting them, they are gone too. So... It's it's a way to weed out agents that don't fit. And it's a closed system. The agents are the ones doing the hiring. The agents are the ones doing the training. They're doing the firing. My name is Rafael Agustin. I'm a writer on the TV show Jane the Virgin. And I am the executive director of La Leaf and the Youth Cinema Project. Oh, did I mention I am a formerly undocumented American? Well, sorry. Not sorry. Every time we have had any immigration system applied in the United States, it has always been a reaction to immigrants of color. In fact, the uh, Homeland Security, which used to be the Immigration Naturalization Services, 
started exclusively for Chinese immigrants. Mm. There's a guy, um, a, a geographer, his name is E.J. Ravenstein, um, and he wrote over a century ago uh, this thing called the Laws of Migration. But basically what it says is that there is an innate desire in most people to better themselves. And all of migration is based on that innate desire to be better and to do better. Oh, I agree with that. Definitely. I do too. Why else would you completely um, uh, pick up your family, take this long journey to our country, however you need to get here, um, if it's not to better yourself, to better future generations, to want to want a better life? Absolutely. Or, or like my parents, you learned the hard way that the American dream is not for you, but for your children. And I think that was, right. that was very, very hard for them to learn, but they were happy to have So they, it. did they ever, uh, were they ever doctors in the United States? No, or what? no. no. When, when they got here, um, first, the, the language barrier. Right. Um, second is like you kind of become a slave to the minimum wage mm-hmm. <laughs> race, mm-hmm. you know. Um, the yeah, because you can't keep your head you, above you the water, right? You, you have to water. just keep going. So the best that they were able to do here was uh, become MRI technicians, mm. um, which was very funny because my father was arguing with the doctors assessing the MRI images, and my dad was always right because he, he was like he was smart, smarter than them as a pediatric surgeon. Um, and this is the great irony of our journey. Uh, my parents got to a place where they made great money as MRI technicians. They had the beautiful California ranch-style home. They had the Porsches and the Mercedes. And one day my dad just said, I'm not happy. I was brought into this world to save children's lives. Your mother and I are moving back to Ecuador. <gasps> and they left. I just got goosebumps. They left it all behind. Wow. Just to go do that. Uh, I'm an only child, so I have abandonment issues now because they left me. Of course. Uh, but <laughs> do you think I have abandonment issues too and I'm not an only child? So no. oh, okay, good. It's very common. Um, but do you think that had they not left to go back, that you would have felt a certain amount of guilt yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I, in fact, uh, I found out my dad tried to go back many years ago, and my mom, who's a very traditional woman who wants to like be there for her husband, uh, that she took her first stand as a modern American feminist. She was like, "No, I'm not going back. You can go ahead and go back. I'm staying with my son." And she stayed. And and my my dad was forced to stay. So oh, I, yeah, yeah. So that's why my parents they tried to go back. I guess when I was uh, like twelve, maybe. And my mom said, absolutely not. We made this huge sacrifice to come here. We're going to stick it out until, I guess, Rafa. It's a dangerous time in America to be a woman. Legislatures across the nation are trying to take away our rights to our own bodies, whether it's forcing us to have invasive and abusive narrated ultrasounds before getting an abortion, banning abortion outright long before most women even know they are pregnant, and even demanding ectopic pregnancies be re-implanted, which isn't even medically possible. Clinics are closing. And women across the country are not able to access not only abortion care, but basic cancer screenings, medications, and other essential preventative health care as a result. And with the Trump-packed Supreme Court, Roe v. Wade is at dire risk. 
What follow are some of the horrifying stories about the war on women taking place in America in 2019. And after, I'll share my own personal abortion story. I shouldn't have to. Nobody should have to. But maybe by telling our stories, we can change some minds. The Senate voted Monday to reject a so-called born-alive bill. It was aimed at curbing late-term abortions. The bill would have required doctors to exercise the same level of care to an infant who survives an abortion that they would provide to any other baby born alive. In a couple of hours, they'll be just debating this new abortion law, a draconian law, in the State House here in Montgomery behind me. It's really extreme. Abortion bans at all stages including for women who have been raped or are victims of incest, a doctor who performs an abortion may even go to prison for 99 years, they say. But the people who framed this have done so deliberately. They want it to get a legal challenge, which it will do, because they want this to go up to the Supreme Court. This is the moment in this conservative era in America. You've got conservative judges on the Supreme Court. The Missouri Senate passed a bill today banning most abortions after eight weeks. The governor's already said he'll sign it. That came a day after Alabama's governor signed a bill outlawing nearly all abortions. There are no exceptions for rape or incest, just for, quote, serious health risks to the mother. And doctors that end pregnancies could face prison time. The bills are part of a wider attack on abortion rights. State lawmakers have introduced at least 250 bills restricting abortion this year. Seven states have passed laws stripping abortion rights in some way, and more could be coming soon. The laws may never take effect. They're all expected to be challenged in court. That's the point. The lawmakers and activists pushing them say their goal is getting to the Supreme Court, where they hope a conservative majority will overturn Roe v. Wade. Georgia's new law banning abortion after a heartbeat has detected sparking boycotts in Hollywood that could put Georgia's massive production business at risk. The state's up to 30 percent tax credits drew over 450 film and TV projects last year, driving over four and a half billion dollars in wages and a nine and a half billion dollar economic impact, according to the Georgia's governor's office. Now, recent projects include Disney's Black Panther and Infinity War, AMC's The Walking Dead and Netflix's Ozark. But now a number of Hollywood Producers and stars say they won't work in the state with the new law. Just this week, a new Amazon show, as well as a Lionsgate movie starring Kristen Wiig, canceled shoots set to start in Georgia. Mark Duplass, Alyssa Milano, Ben Stiller and Ron Howard among those pledging to boycott productions in Georgia. Um, I want to ask you, Kate, about some reporting you did out of this uh, very disturbing case in Ohio. You write that an 11-year-old girl there was allegedly raped. She is now pregnant. And under a new abortion law there, victims will not have the option of terminating a pregnancy. What more can you tell us about this law? So in Ohio, they recently passed, like we were just saying, a heartbeat bill. So that means once a fetal heartbeat is detected, a woman no longer has a choice of whether 
whether or not to have an abortion. Now, that happens about five or six weeks into a pregnancy, which, of course, as you know, that is before most women even know that they're pregnant. So in this case, an 11-year-old girl obviously doesn't know she's pregnant five weeks into her pregnancy after being raped. She would no longer have a choice whether or not to carry that pregnancy to term if this law were enacted. Okay, check it out. Ohio has a bill about abortion. Okay, no surprise. But in that bill is a line that says, if doctors, I'm paraphrasing, if doctors don't want to be convicted of murder, if a woman has an ectopic pregnancy, they will attempt to re-implant the fertilized embryo in the uterus. Sounds feasible, doesn't it? It's not. It's total horseshit. And this is what happens when lawyers and politicians write laws about medicine. I'm so fucking tired of it, you guys. The U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to hear a challenge to a Louisiana law that critics say could leave the state with only one doctor to perform abortions. On Monday, the U.S. Supreme Court rejected a challenge to a controversial Kentucky abortion law, meaning it will remain in effect. The law requires doctors to show and describe ultrasound images to women who are seeking an abortion while playing audio of the fetus's heartbeat. Doctors are required to do this, even if the woman doesn't want to. Doctors who don't can be fined and referred to the state's medical licensing board. In 1993, I had two abortions. I was in love for the first time in the breathless way you can only be in love when you are young. It was huge, overwhelming even. It filled every part of living, and it was a joyful and exciting and powerful time in my life. I was on the pill, taking birth control, because I knew I was not ready to be a parent. I had finished working on Who's the Boss, and I was starting to work on films and other projects, and my career and my life were in front of me, and I was living them as fully as I could. And also, at that time... I was taking a drug called Accutane. Accutane is an acne medicine that is so likely to cause birth defects if taken by a pregnant woman that the FDA now requires doctors, pharmacies, and women to sign up to a registry before prescribing, dispensing, or receiving it. I knew this, and so using birth control was a doubly important decision for me. And I still got pregnant. It was devastating. I was raised Catholic and was suddenly put in conflict with my faith, a faith I was coming to realize empowered only men to make every single decision about what was allowed and what was not allowed. I had a career and a future and and potential. And also I suffered from sometimes crippling anxiety. So I knew, I knew at that time I was not equipped to be a mother. And so I chose to have an abortion. I chose. It was my choice. And it was absolutely the right choice for me. It was not an easy choice. It was not something I wanted, but it was something that I needed. Like most healthcare is. I refuse to allow anyone else's bullshit morality to force me into a life of premarital celibacy. 
I refuse to live in the narrative that sexual pleasure is for men and that women exist to deliver that pleasure. My body gives me pleasure. Sexually connecting with my partner gave me pleasure. Nobody will try and say that he was at fault for enjoying sex with me, but you can be damn sure that the men enacting these laws think less of me for deriving the same pleasure from him. And so I continued to enjoy a sexual relationship with the man I loved. They tell you the pill is 99% effective at preventing pregnancies. And yet, a few months later, I found out I was pregnant again. So I had done what I knew to do to prevent pregnancy and was still pregnant. So once again, I made the right decision to end that pregnancy. The assault against women's bodies over the last few years has forced me to reflect on what I would have lost if I never had my abortions. I would not have my children, my beautiful, perfect, loving, kind, and inquisitive children who have a mother who was so very, very ready for them. I would not have my career. I would not have the ability or platform I use to fight against oppression with all my heart. I would never have met my amazing husband, David, whose steadfast and immeasurable love for me sustains me through these terrifying times, 15 years after that first love had fizzled. My life would be completely lacking all its great joys. I would never have been free to be myself. There were too many important stories in 2019 for us to get them all in one episode, so we asked you to leave us a voice message on what you think the biggest stories were. Here are some of your thoughts. Hey, Alyssa. Um, This is Chris. I think the biggest story of 2019 was the government shutdown. Um, I know it was early in the year, but I think... A lot of us were afraid that the government would um, never open again. And I think that's a big concern with who we have in the White House right now, um, that things aren't functioning the way they should be functioning. And um, that's a big story for a lot of us out here. Thank you. Hi, this is Peter Morley. I'm a patient advocate from New York City, and I'm also a patient My top news story of 2019 is the Trump administration's continuous efforts to sabotage healthcare and the healthcare of 130 million people in America with pre-existing conditions. Hi, Alyssa. My name is Hassan Martini. I am the executive director of No Democrat Left Behind. Never before have a coalition of congressional Democratic candidates running in deep red districts come together like they have in 2020 to form No Dem Left Behind. No Dem Left Behind is the epitome of grassroots organizing. These campaigns are run by candidates' pure grit and will, with with very limited resources and virtually no funding from the Democratic establishment. No Dem Left Behind is made up of nine candidates from across the country. Three out of the nine are vets. Six out of the nine are female. Seven out of the nine candidates are running in rural America. And of course, nine out of the nine are patriots. To hear stories like how veteran Chris Rowe running in rural 
Tennessee have his campaign event overrun by KKK. Yes, you heard that right, the KKK. You need to select No Dem Left Behind. My name is Jeff Paris. I am a retired Air Force Master Sergeant. I believe the biggest story of 2019 is the concentration camps in the United States. This administration has gone on record saying these people do not deserve personal hygiene products, sanitary products, or adequate sleeping items like beds. This administration has also gone on record refusing to give vital, life-saving vaccines like the flu shot. Due to this mistreatment, people including multiple children are dying in these camps. This administration is denying free health care being offered, and they are even arresting doctors that are striving to bring life-saving health care to these people. For these reasons, I believe the United States of America is committing crimes against humanity in these camps. Under Article 7, Paragraph 1, Item K of the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, and that this is the biggest story of 2019. Hi, Elisa. First of all, happy birthday. I believe that we need more people like you, more people that really care about the future of the children and about our future. I would like to, for your next spot, you invite him, please, to Shannon Doherty, because I really want to hear her talk about the animal cruelty. I see, I saw that she posts a lot of stuff on it in her social media, and also about uh, the new platform that they, she is using to get the people hope with the breast cancer. Also, I would like to that, please, know if she will be involved for Sharm Revive Revival or she if she will you know if she will do it or something. Thank you. Hi Elisa. My top story for 2019 is Brexit. So that's it. That's where we are at the end of 2019. Like many others, I use the end of the year to reflect on what I've been through and where I'm going. And I know this. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how much injustice we all have to suffer, I will be right there fighting beside you. You give me hope. You inspire me. You make me optimistic. You fuel my optimism. And I am so very grateful for you. I wish you and yours the healthiest, happiest, and most effective New Year in 2020. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs and music by Josh Cook and Alicia Eagle. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry Not